Well, isn't it always the case that when a new generation or a new version or a new edition of something arises, there is this hope in which it will be so much better than the previous one? And yet, history sometimes, if not always, proves out that that often isn't the case, or at least the fullness of the hope that is instilled in it isn't often realized. This morning, as we continue in our teaching series in the book of Numbers, we will see that very reality on display for us. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Numbers chapter 21. Uh, If you're using the Bible app, it should be right there for you. Numbers chapter 21, this is what the author writes. When the Canaanite king Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Uh, In the previous chapter, they had uh, made an agreement with Edom that they would not travel through. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Chapter goes on to tell the story of the journey through the territory of Moab and two very significant military victories over the king Sihon and the king Og. But today we want to focus on this bizarre, if we're being fair, story of venomous snakes amongst a group of grumbling Israelites. Now, moms. Uh, because it's Mother's Day, perhaps this is an interesting story for you, because perhaps you've been at the table before when your kids have complained about what you've made for dinner, right? And perhaps they've even been so bold to utter the words, this is detestable food, like the Israelites did. And perhaps in that moment, you wished you could have brought on venomous snakes (laughs) into the midst of dinner, right? So, uh, but of course, that's not the case. But I say that to just kind of poke at how odd and strange and unnerving this story is, if we're being honest with it. And the truth is, the Old Testament has a lot of hard stories like this for us to make sense of. So how do we do it? How do we make sense of a story where, once again, we have Israelites grumbling, but God, in this case, sends venomous snakes amongst them. Some of them die 
Many of them are bitten and experiencing agonizing pain. And then he raises up a bronze serpent and says, anyone who looks at it will live. Why does this happen? How do we make sense of this? And I think that what we can do is ask two important questions that will hopefully get us to the meaning of the text and hopefully along the way uh, help us to understand some application and meaning for us even in a very different world uh, that we live in today. The first question is, why? Why did God send these snakes? And the second question is, why did he rescue them in such a bizarre way? Both of these things are really strange uh, as you think of it, in the, the salvation story of the people of God uh, throughout the Old Testament. So, first question, why did he do this? And there's really a very easy answer for this, but it doesn't meet our sensibilities, so we'll go even deeper than that. The very easy answer is because they're grumbling, right? Again, they're ungrateful and they are grumbling. But we have to look even a little bit deeper than that. The author gives us some hints here. It says they are impatient with God. Where did we hear that before? This last chapter with our friend Moses, right? Who was impatient with the patience of God. And so here we have people acting in the very same way. And here we have this idea that not only were they frustrated about the water and the food and the journey, but they publicly lash out against God and dishonor Him by saying, this food is detestable, or this is miserable what you're doing to us. In the very same way that in the last chapter, Moses publicly lashes out at God by striking the rock. I suppose there is a a basic leadership lesson in this for us. If you have leadership uh, here in the church, if you have leadership uh, in your workplace, your leadership in your home, that is that in the way that you lead, you ought to expect people to follow. So it does not surprise us that we have the Israelites acting in a very similar way to Moses in the previous chapter. You say, okay, I get it. It's not just murmuring, right? They're not just frustrated. There's this deep sort of rejection of God and publicly dishonoring or humiliating God, but isn't snakes a little bit too much? (laughs) Right? Is that a fair question for us to ask of God? And I suppose that it is. And to answer that, again, I want to suggest two things from the text here, and and hopefully this uh, meets us and, and gives us some sense of what's happening here. The first is that this is a new generation with the same problems. A new generation with the same problems. And the second answer is, listen, it's a very serious thing to reject God. So new generation, same problems. And second, a warning, it's a very serious thing to reject God. What do I mean new generation with the same problems? Well, if you understand the book of Numbers in the bigger scope of what's happening, the transition from chapter 20 to chapter 21 is significant. It basically is the transition from the older generation to the younger or the newer generation. You remember that because the Israelites failed to trust God, failed to believe that the land that He promised was theirs to be taken, God said, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years and this generation will die off. And At the end of chapter 20, we have the sense that that has largely taken place. The two very 
meaningful things happen, right? Miriam dies at the beginning of chapter 20, and Aaron dies at the end of chapter 20. Very symbolic of the older generation. And in the middle, we're told of Moses, you're not going to lead the people into the land either. And it's almost at the end of this 40 years that all of this is taking place. And so there's this transition that is happening. Now we move into chapter 21, and Israel is beginning the march to conquer the land. Right? They have victory in the very first couple of, chapter, very first couple of verses over the uh, kingdom of Arad. This uh, might spark your memory just a little bit. This is the same kingdom or the same area, territory, that uh, remember when the Israelites had rejected God's land, said, no, it's too hard, we can't do it. And God said, fine, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they, then they, they tried to change their minds and tried to run into the land again. And they were soundly defeated and, and killed. Well, that's the same territory right here, right? And so what's happening here is now they have victory over this. The conquering of the land has started. There's a the churning. The generation is, is turning. This new generation is on the move. And yet, it's just as corruptible as the old one. And we're almost led to believe that this new generation was going to be like good stuff, right? They were going to be the things their parents could never be. They were going to have hearts after God. They were going to trust God and believe God. And yet, after one very significant and monumental victory, they're just like the older generation. In fact, this story is shaping up exactly like the older generation, who on the heels of the Red Sea event and God's miraculous rescue, proceed to grumble in the book of Exodus. So Numbers has been setting us up to say, okay, the old generation couldn't cut the mustard, but this new generation with new leadership is going to be everything we need. And yet in the very first chapter of the story, we see they're just as bad as the old one. They're just as corruptible as the old generation. And they need to be instructed or to be taught or to be reminded of what it means to follow God. And to trust God. Isn't it true in our lives too? We often find ourselves part of the newer generation, right? Uh, whether that means you're a, a child, a kid right now, a teenager, a 20-something, and you're thinking about your parents and thinking they've ruled with oppression, but when I get to there, it's going to be different, right? We've all thought that way and, and believed that way. Or when when we're in charge or when I do this thing, things are going to be different. And there is a very deep biblical message for us in this. That is that every generation is just as corruptible as the previous one. Even as well-intentioned as they might be. Does that mean they will always be as bad as the last one? Obviously, that's not the case, but they are as equally corruptible. I would suggest there's a message for the church in this too. Because my guess is that this younger generation over this 40-year period kept hearing about the older generation is going to pass away, but God has something for this younger or newer generation. And they felt somewhat chosen, right? And that's a fair Old Testament word. Or they felt somewhat empowered. And I'm sure they began to um, feel pretty good about themselves or to smell themselves just a little bit too much. And they began to maybe look down on the generation before them, and yet they trip over themselves in the very same way. What's the message for the church in this? 
I think sometimes we have the tendency to get cloistered up and to listen to all the stuff about the church being God's chosen people and selected and all that God has done for us, all of which is true just as it was for this generation. But it causes us to stumble all over ourselves because we get more dependent upon that status than we do upon the God who rescues us. Does it make sense? It actually causes us to live sort of in a condescending way to those who are outside of us. Why send snakes? Well, I think the first thing is new generation, same problem. The second thing is that it's a very serious thing to reject God. And you say, well, obviously, Adam. (laughs) People are getting bit by venomous snakes. There's not a whole lot of people who aren't at least put off by the presence of snakes, right? This is a, a legit thing. And so when I say it's a very serious thing to reject God, you need to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying when you reject God, you should expect to be met by venomous snakes. Because all of us have had the experience in our life that that isn't true. We've rejected God in many ways and yet haven't had this very experience. And Yet what I want to suggest to you is that what God is doing here is not so much sending something devious into the midst of the people as He is giving them the very thing that they're wanting. That is releasing them to the desires of their heart that are manifest in their grumbling. I think we read Old Testament stories like this and we have this weird and warped picture of God sitting in heaven kind of rubbing His hands as a devious and sinister person thinking about the most heinous thing He can do to punish these bad people. And yet that picture of God doesn't resonate with anything else we read about God in the Old Testament or throughout the whole text or corpus of Scripture. In fact, what is happening here is God is giving these people over to the very desires of their heart. You say, Adam, that doesn't make sense because it clearly says He sent serpents in their midst. And none of their grumblings have to do with serpents. And I want to suggest to you something is that these serpents are very symbolic. Now, stick with me. See if this makes sense to you. When the serpents come, in my mind, they represent two things. The first is slavery, and the second is self-rule. You say, well, that's interesting and nice, but how could that even possibly be true? Well, let me see if I can make sense of this for you. The first reason, or the first thing that serpents represent is slavery, and here's why. Because the kingdom of Egypt was represented in many ways by snakes or serpents. It was there in their imagery of their culture and representative in their culture in many ways. And what is the very thing that Israel is clamoring for throughout this whole wilderness? Oh, wasn't it so much better in Egypt? Basically saying to the God who freed you, hey, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Can you imagine, right? Imagine having been imprisoned for all of your life and then having someone come and break you out of prison and, and, and tell you they're taking you to this, this land of lush provision and halfway through the journey you saying, you know what? I kind of miss the jail cell. Let's just go back. And so when the snakes come, perhaps it's, you know, interestingly ironic, or perhaps it's just completely symbolic, 
that what's happening here is God is saying to them, listen, you keep clamoring for slavery. Let me remind you what slavery does. Slavery always leads to death. And here it is in their midst again. But it's not just about slavery. It's also about self-rule. Because the serpents aren't just part of Egypt's culture. They're also very much part of the Jewish culture. And you need to go nowhere beyond the opening chapters of Scripture in the creation account when we find that temptation is instituted by none other than a serpent. And his temptation to Eve and to Adam is what? Don't you want to be like God? Because that's what he's trying to keep you from, keep from you. That is that he's offering them self-rule. Hey, you don't have to follow God's rules. Do it your own way. If you do your own way, then you can be like God. You can run your own life. Do your own thing. And after all, isn't that the very thing Israel is clamoring for in the desert when they are growing impatient with God's plans and roadmap? Hey, let us do it our own way. It is a very serpent-like thing to ask for. And so my suggestion to us this morning is God is not devious and sinister and sitting up in heaven thinking about, oh, you reject me, I'll make your life miserable. No, my guess is with tears in his eyes, he sometimes correctively releases us to the profane desires of our hearts in hopes that we'll realize the very thing we possess as sons and daughters of the king. Here's something we should know about God. That is that God loves us persuasively, not coercively. Can I say it again? God loves us persuasively, not coercively. That is that God is persistent and pursuant and and faithful in loving us in grace and mercy, but He does not force Himself on us. There is always an element in the story of salvation of receiving the love of God. Now, how you parse that out theologically is very nuanced, and I understand that. But faith is part of this. There is a moment and moments in which we embrace the loving rescue of God. And so what's happening in this story is not so much God kicking Israel to the curb as releasing them. Well, we'll continue to see continuing to pursue them in love. Reminds me an awful lot of the very famous parable that Jesus told that is often called the prodigal son. Of course, God Himself represented by the Father in the story. And you might remember this. The younger son says to the father, listen, it's cool and all being in your household, but I want to be on my own. I want self-rule. So give me the inheritance that is rightfully mine now. In other words, I don't want to wait on your timeline. I don't want to wait for you to die for me to inherit it then. Just give it to me now. I'm going to go do my own thing. And what does the Father do? He does it. This should stop us in our tracks for a moment. That God allows 
this, right? The father doesn't say, I, I forbid it. I won't let it happen. My sovereign hand rests on you. Listen, I'm not trying to be glib and other. I believe in sovereignty and all these things, but we have to understand how this works. And you remember the story. The younger son goes off. And he blows the whole inheritance in wild living. Self-rule doesn't go as well as he imagined it would. He ends up tending to pigs in a muddy sty. And eventually he says, I need to go back to my father and see if he'll bring me on as a servant. And as he journeys back to his father's estate, he finds that his father is on the edges of the estate looking for him. Waiting for him to come back. Pursuing him in love without coercing him in love. And when he comes back, he throws on the royal robe and puts on the family signet ring and, and kills the fattened calf and throws a massive feast of salvation for this son who has gone off his own way. This is who God is. God is not the God who sits in heaven casting lightning bolts or venomous snakes. He is the God who roams the edges of the kingdom looking for the children who have wrongly chosen slavery and self-rule to come back. Pursuing them in persistent love. I don't have time to do this, but I would remind you that that story has another angle too. Uh, Tim Keller in his book Prodigal God has perfectly put it. That is that the old, it is not just the younger son who is given to slavery and self-rule, it is also the older son. It's just a very different kind of slavery and self-rule. It's not to wild living, it's to religious um, self-righteousness. Because when the younger son comes home, uh, the older son can't contain what's actually going on in the bitterness of his heart. He's flabbergasted by his father's gracious love to this son. Because rather than enjoying all that the father had, had offered him in living on this estate, he was trying to prove himself through his loyalty and his actions and his service to the Father instead of enjoying it. The point is that religion can be just as big a slave as self-rule. Right? Just as big a slave driver as self-rule. Serpents amongst the people. Why? It's a new generation with the same problems. And it's a very serious thing reject God. What does that mean for us? Does it mean that when we reject God, because if you're anything like me, every single day is filled with moments of rejecting God. This is not just a one-time decision. I reject or I accept. Does that mean that I'm inviting death into my midst every time I do that? And my answer to you is not a cop-out. But my answer is yes and no. And I say that because you're asking the right question, but in the wrong way. Are you inviting 
actual death into your midst? The answer is maybe. (laughs) But are you inviting the reality of death into your midst? The answer is always 100% yes. It's the experience of death that is sniffed all around us because of self-rule and slavery. It's broken relationships. It's sin that has affected other people. Scripture even alludes to the fact that our rejection of God can have consequences for generations to come. And it's the possibility that the rejection of God by other people can bring death into our midst too. Is it not possible that in this great number of Israelites, there were at least a handful who did not grumble against God? My guess is, yes. And yet, the snakes are there for everyone. Because this is a humanity problem, not an individual problem. And once again, we will have to wrestle with the issue of if it's a humanity problem, then who's going to fix it? If chapter 20 reminded us that Moses isn't the hero of the story, chapter 21 reminds us that God is. Because in the midst of this symbolic release of serpents, and the experience of death is all throughout the people of God, the minute that the people of God turn to God and ask Him for rescue, He says yes. He doesn't negotiate terms with them. He doesn't sign a new treaty or enforce a new law code on them. He doesn't impose all kinds of penalties on them. He says yes, because that's what He wants. And the same is true for us as well. But it leads us to that second uh, hermeneutical question. Okay, fine, he rescues them, but why like this? Because this is weird, right? Even if you've heard this story before, it still should strike you as odd. Like we get water coming from the rock and stuff. That's miraculous. And, but why, would, why, why a bronze serpent on a pole in the middle of people? I mean... After all, hasn't, isn't it part of the Ten Commandments that there shouldn't be any graven images? And doesn't this look an awful lot like a graven image of some sort? In fact, culturally speaking, in that day, there were other archaeological finds of other golden or bronze or copper serpents that people worshipped. So it is striking and symbolic in that way. But we have to think contextually. We understand there's no way. This is not some kind of good luck charm that if you can get close enough to it and touch it, it's going to heal you. It's not some kind of idol that you pray to that's going to heal you. How do we know that? Because Israel tried that in Exodus with the golden calf, and God was really ticked. Remember? That's not what we do. So something else is happening here. But it's fair for us to pause and make a statement for a minute because later in the Old Testament, something significant happens. There's a king named Hezekiah, and before him, Israel has been in bad shape. And Hezekiah is leading Israel in reform. And it says that he's taking down the high places. That is, he's removing the idols from the land. 
And then he does something fascinating. He takes this bronze serpent and he smashes it. Now, can you imagine having the courage to do something like that? We have to ask ourselves, why? Well, why would he do that? And it's, it's talked about as if it was a good thing, because it was a good thing. Because here's what people do. Even the good things that God does that are meant to point to him, we still turn into idols. Does it make sense? And so it is for us. You have moments in your life or spiritual experiences that you try to keep recreating because you're valuing the experience more than the God who met you in the experience. It is that we tend to cling on to things that God uses rather than the God who rescues us. And sometimes that even means we need to shatter a bronze serpent that was so monumental in our salvation. So, a quick warning for us to beware valuing the thing rather than the God who uses the thing. Well, if this isn't some kind of idol, that you, some kind of good luck charm that God is providing, then what is it? Well, again, it is incredibly symbolic. Why a bronze serpent? And why on a pole? And why lifted up? Here's what I think is going on. Amongst the Israelites are a multitude of live serpents biting them. Lifted up above them is a symbol of a dead serpent. And it is copper or bronze on purpose with this reddish tint in order to either uh, inflict the imagery or the symbolism of blood that is death or to, inf- to call up the symbolism of the, the fiery pain or the inflammation that is happening. Because in the storyline, uh, the word that's translated venomous, it really is translated fiery, right? And so when it's the idea when these serpents would bite you, your leg or your arm or wherever it bit you would, would inflame and, and swell up and be red. And, and so this serpent that is up there, the thing that it was doing to them, it, it has happened to it, and it's lifted up on a pole. This idea of being lifted up on a pole has the idea of being impaled, right? And so what's happening here is a serpent who is now dead, having the same thing inflicted on it that it was inflicting on the people of God, impaled on a pole, lifted up by who? God. Why? Because God did it. The very serpents that are killing humanity, God has killed. Do you see this? And once again, it's got nothing to do with serpents and everything to do with slavery and self-rule, sin and death. That in this moment, God has dealt with sin and death that are ruling amongst the humanity under His control. But because His love is not coercive, but rather persuasive, He says, anyone who gazes on it will be restored to life. Why does He make that happen? Because you have to want it. Again, I'm not trying to make an overtly theological statement. I'm just saying there is elements of faith in this journey of salvation. 
And I suppose, we don't know in the story, it is possible for some people that they decided not to do this. And I also, perhaps this is reading in, would suggest to you that the gazing had more to do with the heart than it had to do with the eyes. But without reservation, anyone who embraced this salvation offered by God received it. No signed treaties, no quid pro quos, no list of you musts now. Complete grace and mercy. This is our God. You know what's fascinating about Numbers chapter 20 and chapter 21? Both of them are literary chiastic structures. I know, here I go again, right? Chiastic structures just means there's two things and there's something in the middle. Sometimes there's way more things that lead to the thing in the middle. Or if you need help remembering it, do it like I do. Food, right? Sandwiches. Two pieces of bread, something in the middle. What are the two things on the outside in chapter 20? Death. Miriam dies, Aaron dies. What happens in the middle? Major failure by Moses. Failure leads to death. Chapter 21, what happens? In the beginning, major victory over Arad. And at the end, major victory over Sihon and Og. And what happens in the middle? Major failure by the people. What's the difference? Moses is the hero. God is the hero. This is the gospel. Where are you looking for rescue? You know, what's fascinating about Numbers 21 is it is a, an incredible moment in time that could be, could be and was commemorated by the people of God, and yet they needed to continually deal with their rebellion. If only this bronze serpent had once and for all dealt with the issue of sin and death. And yet, as you might have guessed, it was pointing forward to the very thing that would, once and for all, deal with sin and death. Jesus Himself. Who in His incarnation comes right into the midst of this world filled with serpents of slavery and self-rule, sin and death. Who Himself in the wilderness is tempted by by this serpent Himself with self-rule, and yet rejects it and trusts God in the way that the Israelites never could. And guess what? The ways that you and I do not. But is that the story? No. In fact, when one of the great teachers of the law came to Jesus, seeing some of the signs and wonders that He did in John chapter 3, and said, tell me what you're doing. Why have you come? What is this all about? Jesus points to a very fascinating story in the Old Testament, Numbers 21. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14, just as Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man, a way Jesus referred to Himself, be lifted up. Ah, and now we understand. It was not just about Jesus coming and proving that He could do what we never could. He was going to take on these mortal enemies of sin and death, slavery and self-rule that as human beings we could never deal with. And He was going to take it on by Himself being the thing that was lifted up. Not impaled on a pole, but nailed to a cross. 
becoming death in place of those who deserved it. And in so doing, fulfilling the very first prophecy of all of Scripture, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman, though bitten on the heel by the serpent, would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Why the cross? To once and for all kill the serpent and free the people from the slavery of sin and death. But Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus, and so, whoever believes will have eternal life. Now, we've often translated that to understand like a really long life after this earthly life. And that's true. But eternal life means more than that. It means a full life now. And Jesus is saying the key to that, the only way to unlock that is to believe me. What is he saying? To gaze on the ultimate bronze serpent in the wilderness. Why? Because when you do, in your heart, you are realizing that we are inflicted by venomous serpents of our own doing. And our only hope is a gracious God who would provide a way to kill the ultimate enemy. And He's done it. In Jesus. And the writer to Hebrews reminds us that this is not just a one-off incident in the wilderness. This is a once and for all cleansing. And oh, by the way, Jesus reminds us in John chapter 3, verse 16, not just for a select few, but for the entire cosmos, the whole world. For God so loved, persuasively, not coercively. Who? The world. How? That He gave His only Son impaled on a pole and raised up in the wilderness so that anyone who gazes on Him in belief will not die of the venomous snake bites of sin and death, but instead will have the fullness of life now and the fullness of life for all of eternity. And in so doing, Jesus left the question or the proverbial ball in the court of Nicodemus. And so too with you. What will you do with the brokenness of this world? Keep pushing into slavery and self-rule? Or look to a Savior lifted up on a cross in the wilderness and be won over by the persuasive love of God. Can I pray with you?